It's good to see you guys. Um, welcome to Redemption Hill Church. Uh, today we're going to wrap up this little mini-series uh, that we've been in called Heresy. The absolute joy of my life doing this stuff, <laughs> right? Uh, I actually like talking about this stuff. I don't like studying for it. I don't like researching it because, you know, you spend 95% of your study time just reading, you know, just and then like... I don't know if any of you own Google stock, but I'm sure I made the stock go up a little bit in the last couple of weeks because, man, I've just had to do so much searching and finding and reading and then opening books and just trying to get these heresies down. It's a real challenge. So I, I would much prefer just to open a book in the Bible and just study there and just study that line by line and preach that because, uh, believe it or not, it's, I don't know if it's easier, but it's definitely easier. <laughs> and just finding all this stuff. So anyways, we're going to wrap up this little three-part mini-series today. Just a real quick recap. On week one, we defined what heresy is. We talked about its origin. We talked about how to defend ourselves against it. Um, on week two, that was last Sunday, uh, I identified six uh, heresies, ancient heresies, if you will. Uh, do any of you remember what they were? Do you remember which ones we covered? We covered... Judaizing, that was one of the first ones we see in the New Testament. Uh, we covered Gnosticism, we covered Docetism, Originism, Sabellianism, and Arianism. A lot of isms. And so those are the ones that we covered. I, I would strongly recommend, if you weren't with us last week, that you go on our website and go to the sermon uh, badge and click on that and then probably take a listen. It's good stuff. And one, one of the things that we've been doing, doing too is just, you know, we're identifying what the heresy is, we're defining it, we're talking about it in an ancient context, and then we're talking about it in our context, and how these things have kind of moved through time and been reboxed and repackaged and, and resold and unfortunately repurchased. So that's one of the strategies here. Um, yeah, we've shown how these things are really still alive today. Uh, this morning, I'm going to have five more for you. I was shooting for six, but wow. Um, yeah, I just couldn't stop writing on the ones that we have, and so uh, let's go ahead and pray one more time, and, and we'll get to work. Father in heaven, we pray to you, Lord, and we ask um, for spiritual wisdom and spiritual dis uh, discernment. We pray that the Holy Spirit would open our minds and hearts to the truth. Uh, we pray against the idea of this sermon just being informative um, an educational class, which it can feel like, it can seem like a lecture. Um, Lord, we want to know what's out there. We want to know what's even here and what some of us believe. And, and, and you know, if we're in error, we want, we want those things pointed out, Lord. We do. We want to please you with our lives. And so send the Holy Spirit and power to, to not lecture us, but to disciple us, to sanctify us and to take the truth and to apply it to our hearts that we might be changed uh, and that we might glorify you with our lives, with our theology, with all that we are. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. First one for the day. Are you going to take notes? Are you ready? Lots of isms. Pelagianism. And I've tried to sort of do these things in a chronological order, like, you know, Judaizing all the way up to uh, the last one that we'll talk about today. So these things have sort of, they're in an order, if you will. Pelagianism slash semi-Pelagianism. Has anyone in here heard of Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism? A handful. Okay, so of course my wife has because I talk about this stuff endlessly. Um, she's like, she's like scholar now, you know. Um, this is a 4th century heresy. That's, I mean, obviously, I think all of these things go back to the garden, but, you know, this is when this term was penned, if you will, and it's when this heresy arose, in a sense. And so it's, it's named after um, its founder. Uh, I don't even know if we would call him the founder of it. I suppose we would, but it's named after this particular guy's theology or teachings. His name was Pelagius. He was a a British monk uh, whose reputation and theology came into prominence after he went to Rome sometime during the 4th century. Uh, the historic Pelagian theological 
controversy involved the nature of man and the doctrine of original sin. And so that was the thrust of that theology. It focused on it focused basically on original sin and the nature of man. Pelagius believed that the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin, the fall as we know it, uh, were restricted to themselves only, uh, and thereby denied the belief that original sin was transferred from the children of Adam, uh, and you know, from there to the children of Adam, and thus to the whole human race over time. Adam's sin merely set a bad example for his progeny, and Jesus set a good example for mankind, thus counteracting Adam's bad example. Uh, Pelagianism teaches that human beings are born in a state of innocence uh, with a nature that is as pure as that which Adam was given at creation prior to the fall. And, and some of us in this room have heard this idea, you know, oh, he's just a little baby, he's innocent, and, you know, and, oh, he, he was innocent, he didn't know anything about this stuff and all that, we tend to think that children are innocent, you know, before they commit their first, I don't know about you, they come out of the womb sinning, they're screaming, oh, that's just not right behavior, uh, but there's an idea that, you know, that we're not sinful and that maybe our culture and our surroundings and the way our upbringing we're influenced and we kind of become a sinner over time because of these bad negative influences. And so that really is Pelagianism in a nutshell. It's not believing that, that Adam and Eve you know, were sinners and that they passed their sin along to the rest of humanity. Um, and so it kind of rejects that idea. It, it basically views humanity as, as good and morally unaffected by the fall. And, you know, if any of you have been in the Lord for any length of time, more than five minutes, um, you know that you're not a moral person. You know that you're, you know, you have a strong propensity to immorality. And so it's just astonishing that people can come up with these ideas, especially so-called Christians. Um, but it, it just rejects the idea that, you know, we're immoral people, that, you know, the fall hasn't impacted us in a moral sense. It denies the imputation of Adam's sin, original sin, total depravity, and substitutionary atonement. It simultaneously views man as fundamentally good and in possession of libertarian free will. Uh, with regards to salvation, it teaches that man has the ability in and of himself, apart from divine aid, to obey God, and to earn eternal salvation. Those are some of its precepts. Those are some of its doctrinal positions and beliefs. Uh, now, this obviously resulted in a gospel, um, you know, with a salvation that is based primarily upon human works, primarily upon what the person does, because the person hasn't been impacted by sin at the deepest level, and he has a, an ability to... Um, to incline himself to God in a moral sense and to do what's right and to believe. And so, I mean, that just basically completely destroys the gospel, the biblical gospel. Because the biblical gospel teaches that man is hopelessly helpless in sin and, and can't do anything to, to change his position with God whatsoever. And so it just rejects all of that. Man could choose, in the Pelagian system of belief, could choose to follow the precepts of precepts of God and then uh, follow those precepts because he has the power within him to do that. He has the ability. Um, now, the controversy slammed into, during this time, it slammed into someone in particular that was like, whoa, hold on a second here. This is what you've been teaching, Pelagius? This is what you're, this is what you're discipling through. This is what you're lecturing. This is, these are the sermons that you're teaching. These are, you're, you're, you know, if you're, if you're teaching in a college, you're impacting students with this. So this is what you're, this is it. And, and it, it all came to head when this particular line of theology slammed into a guy named Augustine. And praise God that God has raised up people throughout the ages to not let these things go to the, you know, full extreme and to restrict God restricts, he, he binds and restricts evil at times, and he raised up Augustine to do that. And so this ideology, this theology slammed into Augustine. Maybe you know who he is. He was the Bishop of Hippo. He was an amazing, amazing man of God. I would recommend that, that anyone in this room and everyone in this room read his confessions. They're just fantastic. It's 
tells of his conversion. It's an excellent book. And I think there's another one that's really, really thick called City of God, and that's an amazing book too. And some people are shaking their heads out here, yes, because they've probably dove into those readings, and that's just good stuff. Um, Augustine recognized that man did not have a free will in moral issues related to God, asserting that the effects of original sin were passed to the children of Adam and Eve and that mankind's nature was thereby corrupted. A man could choose what he desired, but those desires were influenced by his sinful nature, and he was unable to refrain from sinning. Augustine's understanding of the nature of man, salvation, these sorts of things that we're talking about, was actually biblical. This is what your Bible teaches. It doesn't teach that man is unaffected by sin. If anything, you know, just read the Old Testament for 10 minutes. I will read the book of Judges. You know, and so Augustine's view was right. It was biblical. It wasn't right because he was Augustine. It wasn't right because he was like one of the first Reformed guys. It was right because it was biblical. He had his finger on the pulse of God's word. The other guy absolutely did not. The other guy was a humanist. Pelagian was a humanist. You know, the most important thing in his realm was the person, not the word of God and not God himself. So, Augustine's understanding was biblical. Now, the Bible does not deny that people have free will. It doesn't deny that we have a free will, and no one should deny that we have a free will. It just rejects the idea that we can come to God on our own. It rejects the idea that we can actually incline ourselves via our free will on our own, that we can make a moral decision towards God on our own. That's what the Bible rejects. It boldly declares that man is lost in sin and will never come to God unless God first comes to him in power, supernaturally, in and through the person and power and work of the Holy Spirit who regenerates and illuminates us and grants us the gifts of faith and repentance. Did you guys know that faith and repentance are actually God-granted gifts? That's what your Bible teaches. So this idea that these things are indicative of humanity, that they're built into humanity, built into people, fallen people, is absurd. These things are given in a supernatural way to a person. And that's what your Bible teaches. And so that was Augustine's perspective. He held that biblical view. He knew and understood that only after God comes to the sinner and performs a miraculous work, only then could man incline himself to God. Under no circumstances could he come to God on his own without divine aid and without the supernatural help of the Holy Spirit. Augustine brought charges against Pelagius, uh, but Pelagius was able to clear himself by hiding his real beliefs. Now, he had a track record of teaching this human-based sort of gospel, and when pressed, when questioned, when interviewed, when interrogated, if you will, he would, you know, he would start candy coating or he would just not say what he was saying in a classroom or in a church building or somewhere else in a conversation. And so he was able to sort of stow away his real beliefs and, and sort of, you know, pander, if you will, like politicians do. But not for long. Uh, in 418 A.D., Pelagianism was condemned as heresy at the Council of Carthage. And then again in 431 A.D. at the Council of Ephesus. Uh, Pelagianism was later replaced by another form of it called semi-Pelagianism, which sought a middle ground between Pelagianism and Augustinianism. And, and I've always thought it's funny how we name things after people who come up with some pretty good theologies. You know, it's like we, we, just, we put their name. I don't think these guys would care for that. Maybe Pelagian would, but I don't think Augustine would want to, you know, his theological perspective, he would want people to call themselves Augustinian. I mean, that's just Philistinian, right? That would be me. I mean, that, that's like a Philistine, right? We, we got killed in the Old Testament, so... Uh, that's just awkward. Calvinism, you know, that's another one. It's like Calvin, you know, he's, every time we say Calvinism, he spins one more time in his grave. He's like, stop that, you know. Gosh, quit talking about me, you know. Um, but he brought these charges, and, and this guy tried to hide it, and there were two councils where they literally 
condemn that as heresy. And then semi-Pelagianism rose up. It was that middle ground between Pelagianism and Augustinianism. Semi-Pelagianism, I think, is every bit as dangerous as Pelagianism, but it sounds a little more biblical, which makes it way more friendly uh, to most people. It did not deny original sin and its effects upon the human soul and will, but it taught that God and man cooperate to achieve man's salvation. Um, This cooperation is not, you know, by human effort as in keeping the law, but uh, but rather in the ability of a person to make a free will choice. Uh, The semi-Pelagian teaches that man can make the first move toward God uh, by seeking him out of his own free will and that man can cooperate with God's grace. Uh, the problem with this scenario is that grace can't be grace. Grace is not grace in that scenario. It just can't be. It, grace cannot be, biblical grace cannot be biblical grace in Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism. And people that believe that man can cooperate and receive the grace of God, they've completely misunderstood what grace is. Grace is the unmerited favor of God, and it is freely given and supernaturally applied. It's not hung out there in the atmosphere like a carrot on the end of a string with a bunch of human beings going, that's not the way it works. It is, it is given freely, freely by God in a supernatural way. It is supernaturally applied. So it's not just some thing that's floating out in the atmosphere that we can grab like the carrot on the end of the string. But semi-Pelagianism teaches that it is. Grace is not reliant upon us or upon our cooperation, or salvation isn't, if you will. If it were, as I said, it would not be grace. Grace, on the contrary, actually, it initiates and empowers our cooperation or obedience. Write this down. This is really important. There's three things you want to write down real quick, and they're just short and sweet. Putting cooperation, or obedience, if you will, putting cooperation ahead of grace is heresy. That's Pelagianism. Putting cooperation alongside of grace is heresy. That's semi-Pelagianism. Putting grace ahead of cooperation is orthodoxy. That's what your Bible teaches. Grace comes first. God comes first in power with grace, and then obedience follows. So we have to make sure that we're right on this. I'd say 90%, 80%, maybe 75%, maybe more, maybe a little less of Christians in this nation believe in view two. They believe in semi-Pelagianism. They believe it's hung out there. There's a carrot out there. Now you need to go do something about it. And I'll tell you what, just about every pastor in every church is preaching that every week. Well, God just freely put it out there. He's just waiting on you. And so you you just need to make that first move and that step of faith and just grab onto that grace. That's what men are preaching daily, weekly in churches. That is semi-Pelagianism. It's rampant. So cooperation ahead of grace is heresy. Cooperation alongside uh, of grace is heresy. And grace ahead of cooperation, that's actually orthodoxy. That's what your Bible teaches a zillion times over Ephesians 2, 8, 9, 40. It's by grace you have been saved through faith. What's faith? Cooperation. Through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Now, how did the church way back when deal with semi-Pelagianism? Did they just let it go and, okay, this isn't as bad as Pelagianism? No, 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 no. It was condemned as heresy at the Second Synod of Orange in 529 A.D. However, elements of semi-Pelagianism continued in the Western Roman Church. So it was still given attention and focus and study, and it spread, and it kind of continued to go on. Is... Pelagianism and or semi-Pelagianism around today, of course, I just said it is. We typically will see it in Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormonism and Catholicism and liberal Christianity. They're all Pelagian. In large portions of the mainstream American church are semi-Pelagian. We have to cooperate with what God's put out there. It's just out there for everyone, and so I hope you do something about it. That's semi-Pelagian lingo. 
Scriptures that refute Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism, there are way too many to list here. A few, Matthew 19, 25 to 26, John 3, 8, John 15, 16, Romans 3, 23 to 26, Romans 5, 11 to 21, Romans 9, 11, Romans 11, 6, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. I mean, they're just all over the place. They're everywhere. Number two, Christian mysticism. Second through 16th centuries. Um, Eastern mysticism, maybe you're familiar with Eastern mysticism, is the belief that the spiritual reality or the belief that spiritual reality is perceived apart from the human intellect and natural senses. Um, It looks for truth internally, weighing feelings, intuition, and other internal sensations Uh, more heavily than objective, observable, external data. Uh, Mysticism ultimately derives its authority from a self-actualized, self-authenticated light rising from within. Sounds like call Cleo, remember? Call me now, right? Very new agey kind of thing. Yes, that's grounded in mysticism. Um, Its source of truth, mysticism's source of truth is absolutely, without a doubt, spontaneous feeling rather than objective fact. Uh, Christian mysticism began to develop during the second century among Egyptian hermits uh, who had been influenced by the Platonic theology of origin. There's another contribution. We talked about originism last week. There's another contribution that he made. Uh, They felt these little hermits, I suppose, I don't know why I called them little. I think of hermit crabs every time I talk about hermits, cute little guys. Um, They weren't hermit crabs. They were people. Um, Apparently, they felt dissatisfied with the community life of the church and were searching for a more immediate experience of God in the isolation of the desert. In their view, the presence of Christ was no longer a historical event, but rather a personal encounter Uh, which resulted from ascetical purification, learning to live without, denying yourself, stay away from the wine, Fred, stay away from the yeast and these sorts of things, you know, exclude yourself, stay away from culture, stay away from society. And it would be in those little, you know, separated, isolated um, contexts where we could achieve true spirituality. Uh, Christian mysticism maintains that God dwells in all Christians and and that they can experience God directly through belief in Jesus Christ. Now, that's absolutely true. But Christian mysticism also agrees with Eastern mysticism in that it says that the best way to experience God is by looking within, weighing out the feelings, trying to find that divine light and that spark inside of you. Uh, B.B. Warfield had it right about 120 years ago or so. He said, Christian mysticism does not differ differ from the parallel phenomena which are observable in other religions. It is only general mysticism manifesting itself on Christian ground and interpreting itself accordingly in the forms of Christian thought. It is mysticism which has learned to speak in the Christian language. So what Warfield has said is that Christian mysticism is the same as Eastern mysticism, but there's some Christianity threaded through it. We throw Jesus in once in a while, the Holy Spirit, these sorts of things. So there's really no difference. It's the same as all other forms of mysticism. At its core, Christian mysticism uh, does not rely upon the scriptures for its truth and spirituality, but rather upon one's own feelings, impressions, and intuitions, the same as Uh, mysticism or Eastern mysticism. Luther uh, came face to face with it in his day. He did. And I think this quote is probably in your bulletin. Here's how he responded to it. And if you've read any Luther or any of his quotes, you know that he can be very brash and he was very gassy. I was hoping that that would get a rise out of you, right? He was a very gassy guy. I, I don't know how. I, it's like when he, was, you know, when he was writing or something, he just included those struggles, I guess. I don't know. It's really bizarre. But he said this about mysticism or Christian mysticism. He said, for feelings come and feelings go, 
right? Got to throw a British accent in there. He wasn't British. And feelings are deceiving. My warrant is the word of God. Nothing else is worth believing. This is his statement. He's like, wait a minute. You're talking about finding truth and, 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 and being sanctified and conformed to the image of Christ by looking inside of yourself? By looking for that light? By looking for that flame in you or whatever these people think it is? And he just said, man, that's, that's pretty much ridiculous. My warrant is the Word of God. Nothing else is worth believing. That was the way that he responded to it, and I'm sure he said much more in every pub that he visited and in every room where he lectured and in every church where he preached. He was a fantastic guy, crazy guy. A primary practice of Christian, and he was gassy, a primary practice of Christian mysticism is contemplative prayer. You heard of it? Lectio, Divina. This is a primary practice. It has been throughout all the ages, especially in Roman Catholicism, but is very, very popular today in many many churches. There are four basic components to it. Number one, emptying one's mind. Oh, Ace Ventura, all righty then. Remember that? I love that. Emptying one's mind. You must, you must, uh, you know, vacate all thoughts. Secondly, listening for a word or phrase from God. Listening for a word or phrase from God. Thirdly, Searching for an emotion. If you're a woman, you don't have to search for long. You just turn around and there's one right there. All the ladies in here are going, crucify him, but you know it's true. If you're a man, you're like, I'm going to be here all day. I can't find an emotion. Right? Fourth, seeking an application based on everything else that's happened. Now, the Bible does not instruct us to pray this way, which means that contemplative, contemplative prayer is not biblical. It is mysticism. That's just all there is to it. I don't care how much Bible you try to throw into it or not or whatever. I mean, people do it in different ways. In biblical prayer, we are able to come into the presence of the Lord, but not through mystical experience or mantra. Rather, our entrance is based on the atoning work of Jesus Christ, and our purpose is to receive God's mercy and grace, Hebrews 4.16. In biblical prayer, we are not to be mindless, but very much aware that time is growing short, and we must look soberly at our testimonies first Peter 4, 7, in biblical prayer, the believer is not seeking nirvana, but seeking God to have an impact on his life and those around him. James 5, 16, uh, fantastic passage. In biblical prayer, the believer can experience peace, but it is peace as a result of bringing life's worries and requests to God, right? In prayer, we petition for his relief. Philippians 4, 6 through 7. In biblical prayer, the believer prays through the Spirit, Jude 1, 20, Ephesians 6, 18. With the Spirit, he, he prays through the Spirit and with the Spirit and with the mind, 1 Corinthians 4, 15. And also without what? Ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. In biblical prayer, the believer praises God's attributes and works, Psalm 19, 1, Psalm 151, in addition to confessing his sin to God, 1 John 1, 9. That, that's a handful of passages and little tiny commentary on what biblical prayer looks like. And I don't know about you, but based on that handful, it doesn't look like sitting there and you know, uh, emptying your mind and doing these sorts of crazy things. Because that's not, contemplative prayer is not biblical prayer. It's not we pray with a purpose, and it's not to get a word or a phrase. I mean, you should pray to God with a mind filled with Scripture. You don't want to empty your mind. If you don't have a mind that's filled with Scripture, how are you going to pray to God at all? You must know His truth. And so I say these things, and I'm passionate about it because I've, I've done it. I've done it a dozen, I've done it ten dozen times. I know what contemplative prayer is. And every time I did it, I felt in the pit of my gut, I don't think this is right. And I think other churches in the community, I know they're doing it, but I think they're starting to catch, they're starting to pick up on this stuff. They're starting to say, wait a minute, I think so. this is based on Catholicism? 
then we really need, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's wrong, but we need to take a look into it. And then when you start to look into it, you find out that it's grounded in mysticism. And then, you, and then it's just, why are we doing this, people? Because we're addicted to experience. God isn't someone that I can read about. I mean, I know that there's an experiential component to faith, but you know, when we relate everything that has to do with God to experience, we're in trouble. It's not always about experience. There is objective truth that we read and that we study that there is power in this and this alone, and this is what transforms us and conforms us to the image of Christ. And so if, if you want to experience God, try opening this and reading it. You don't have to sit there and empty your mind. and huh. 90% of the time, maybe more, maybe less, that, that is an opportunity for the devil to speak to you. He will creep in there and tell you things that are not true. And you'll go, oh, great. I mean, we're fallible people. The only, as Luther said, this is the standard. This is where we go. Three, make sure I'm in the right place. Yeah. Three, Arminianism. 16th century. Arminianism is a system of belief that attempts to explain the relationship between God's sovereignty and mankind's free will, especially in relationship to salvation. Arminianism is named after Jacob Arminianus, or Arminianus, Arminius. He was a 16th century Dutch theologian. Um, his opposition to some of the teachings of the Belgic Confession was formalized into five articles of what we call remonstrance, published by his followers in 1610, shortly after he died. Um, here are the articles. Article 1, free will. Although human nature was seriously affected by the fall, man has not been left in a state of total spiritual helplessness. God graciously enables every sinner to repent and believe, but he does not interfere with man's freedom. Each sinner possesses a free will, and his eternal destiny depends on how he uses it. Man's freedom consists of his ability to choose good over evil in spiritual matters. His will is not enslaved to his sinful nature. The sinner has the power to either cooperate with God's Spirit and be regenerated or resist God's grace and perish. The lost, sinner needs this spirit, the lost sinner needs this spirit's assistance, but he does not have to be regenerated by the spirit before he can believe, for faith is man's act and precedes the new birth. Faith is the sinner's gift to God. It is man's contribution to salvation. That is a summarized explanation of the first article of Arminianism. Secondly, Article 2, conditional election. God's choice of certain individuals unto salvation before the foundation of the world was based upon his foreseeing uh, that they would respond to his call. He selected only those whom he knew would of themselves freely believe the gospel. Election, therefore, was determined by or conditioned upon what man would do. The faith which man foresaw or God foresaw and upon which he based his choice was not given to the sinner by God. It was not uh, created by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, but resulted solely from man's will. It was left entirely up to man as to who would believe and therefore as to who would be elected unto salvation. Article 3, Universal Redemption. Christ's Redeeming work made it possible for everyone to be saved, but did not actually secure the salvation of anyone. Although Christ died for all men and for every man, only those who believe in him are saved. His death enabled God to pardon sinners on the condition that they believe, but it did not actually put away anyone's sins. Christ's redemption uh, becomes effective only if man chooses to accept it. Article 4, Resistible Grace. The Holy Spirit calls inwardly all those who are called outwardly by the gospel invitation. He does all that he can to bring every sinner to salvation, but inasmuch as man is free, he can successfully resist the Spirit's call. 
The Spirit cannot regenerate the sinner until he believes. Faith, which is man's contribution, precedes and makes possible the new birth. Thus, man's free will limits the Spirit in the application of Christ's saving work. The Holy Spirit can only draw to Christ those who allow Him to have His way with them. Until the sinner responds, the Spirit cannot give life. God's grace, therefore, is not invincible. It can be and often is resisted and thwarted by man. Article 4. This is what these guys taught. Article 4. Falling from grace. Those who believe and are truly saved can lose their salvation by failing to keep up their faith. Arminianism sounds a lot like a form of semi-Pelagianism, doesn't it? That's because it is semi-Pelagianism. It's just semi-Pelagianism, repackaged, made a little more friendly, made a little more palatable. That's all it is. It's just a repackaged version of it. The remonstrance was the basis, okay, these ideas, these thoughts, these articles, was the basis for formal debates in the Dutch churches, that's where it originated, and resulted in the National Synod of Dort, 1618 to 1619, where the reformers gave their defense against these articles. The five articles of Calvinism. Here's the response. Article 1, total depravity. Because of the fall, man is unable of himself to savingly believe the gospel. The sinner is dead, blind, and deaf to the things of God. His heart is deceitful and desperately corrupt. His will is not free. It is in bondage to his evil nature. Therefore, he will not, indeed, he cannot choose good over evil in the spiritual realm. Consequently, it takes much more than the Spirit's assistance to bring a sinner to Christ. It takes regeneration by which the Spirit makes the sinner alive and gives him a new nature. Faith is not something man contributes to salvation, but is itself a part of God's gift of salvation. It is God's gift to the sinner not the sinner's gift to God. Article 2, unconditional uh, election. God's choice, God's choice of certain individuals unto salvation before the foundation of the world rested solely in His own sovereign will. His choice of particular sinners was not based on any foreseen response of obedience on their part, such as faith, repentance, etc., On the contrary, God gives faith and repentance to each individual whom He selected. These acts are the result, not the cause of God's choice. Election, therefore, was not determined by or conditioned upon any uh, virtuous quality or act foreseen in man. Those whom God sovereignly elected, He brings through the power of the Holy Spirit to a willing acceptance of Christ. Article 3, limited atonement, or I like particular redemption. That's a better way to say it because limited atonement just sounds like God doesn't have all the power that He has. Particular redemption. Christ's redeeming work was intended to save the elect only and actually secured salvation for them. So it wasn't just hung out there for people. Hopefully somebody does something here. I'd hate to waste the blood of my son. That's the logic of Arminianism. It could go to waste because he died for everyone if they don't believe. It was actually a literal propitiation made for a particular people, purchased people, kind of like how God chose the Israelites. Very similar. That's a parallel. His death was substitutionary endurance of the penalty of sin in the place of certain specified sinners. In addition to putting away the sins of his people, Christ's redemption secured everything necessary for their salvation, including faith which unites them to him. The gift of faith is infallibly applied by the Holy Spirit to all for whom Christ died, therefore guaranteeing their salvation. Article 4, irresistible grace. Now, every one of these things is a complete opposite of each other. Each one is an opposite of the other. You've got, you know, five of them in Arminianism and you have five in Calvinism. They're all opposite of each other. They're juxtaposition, but they're opposite. They contradict each other. Irresistible grace. In addition to the outward general call to salvation, that's what happens when we preach the word, which is made to everyone who hears the gospel, the Holy Spirit extends to the elect a special inward call that inevitably brings them to salvation. 
The internal call, which is made only to the elect, cannot be rejected. Um, It always results in conversion. By means of this special call, the Spirit irresistibly draws sinners to Christ. He is not limited in His work of applying salvation by man's will, nor is He dependent upon man's cooperation for success. The Holy Spirit graciously causes the elect sinner to cooperate, to believe, to repent, to come freely and willingly to Christ. God's grace, therefore, is invincible. It never fails to result in the salvation to those or of those to whom it is extended. Never fails. I love that. Article 5, perseverance of the saints. Again, complete opposite of the other view. Perseverance of the saints. All who are chosen by God, redeemed by Christ, and given faith by the Holy Spirit are eternally saved forever and ever and ever. They are kept in faith by the power of Almighty God and thus preserved to the very end of their life and on through into eternity. They never lose their salvation. They cannot lose it. Neither death nor life, nothing can separate you from the love of God for those who are in Christ. Jesus, this kind of idea here, this is what this is based on. Now after, and this, this council, it wasn't like a two-day seminar at, you know, Bayside in Sacramento. This thing went on for like six months, this debate between these two parties, between the Arminians and the Calvinists. Six months of this, 154 sessions. That would have been the most mind-blowing thing. If I could go back in time, that, I mean, I probably wouldn't have understood half of what they were saying, but it would have been neat to be there, right? Paul, would you have just kicked back in the back and took a few notes? You would have, wouldn't you? Yes, you would have. M- many people in this room would have. It would have been an exciting thing to listen to, but it probably would have been over our heads too, in a sense. The 86 member, okay, six months, 154 s- sessions, the 86 member council voted and condemned Arminianism as heresy. That's what happened. They voted and condemned it. After all those conversations, after all those dialogues, after all of that exposition, out of, after all of the, everything that took place over six months, the council was united in condemning it as heresy. Is Arminianism around today? Yes. Yes. The high majority of pseudo-Christian groups are Arminian. Uh, there are traces of it, obviously, in Roman Catholicism, Methodism, Pentecostalism, Seventh-day Adventism, mainstream American Christianity, I'd say most regular evangelical churches in the U.S. are Arminian. They're semi-Pelagian, but they wouldn't know what that means, so they just, I don't know if they'd even refer to themselves as Arminian. I'm not sure if they know that there's actually a label or title that goes to the kind of belief they have. I didn't know these things existed just five or six years ago. I just believed what I believed and then found out that somebody, a lot of people had looked into these things years ago, and they actually have a name for it. I just, it's mind-blowing. So I'd say most churches in, in the States are Arminian. They have this sort of view that it's, you know, it's equal man, equal God. It's a synergistic gospel. It's not a monogistic gospel. Monergistic means that God alone saves. It's by His sovereignty. He's the one that does it all, and we rejoice in that, and, and we celebrate that. Synergism teaches that it's equal effort, God and man. And so I think most churches are synergistic. Unfortunately, it's very sad. Living in a democracy has helped to promote this fallacy among believers. It really has. In some of the old country back in Europe, you just don't have these issues because they're governed by a monarchy. They understand sovereignty. They understand kingship. Here we elect our officials. We elect our presidents. And so we also think we elect our salvation. Seriously. We, you guys, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but living in a democracy has had a massive effect on our theology. We have all this freedom and liberty to pursue happiness and do all this... America, the United States of America, is the most humanistic nation on the face of the earth, more so than Rome was back years ago. And so the emphasis is on the person here in this nation. It's all about you, your happiness, your, you know, whatever it is that you want. It's all about the individual here, personal happiness. And so we elect our presidents. We think we elect ourselves to salvation. We think that we're, you know, the, the creme de la creme. We're the pinnacle of all things here. It's a terrible, terrible way to think. Which scriptures refute Arminianism? Well, the same that refute Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism. There's just too many to list. I already covered some. Four, antinomianism. 
16th century. And um, I think you'll understand why I bring this one up. This is one that, that is mostly associated with my tradition, the Reformed tradition. And so that's why it's, we need to bring it up. But it's, when I explain it, you'll say, oh, yeah, I, I'm familiar with that. This arose, I mean, it's been around, I think, since the ages, you know, since the old days. But it really kind of came into existence, if you will, during the Reformation. I believe it was Martin Luther who actually coined the phrase Arminianism. He was referring to uh, a contemporary who had kind of gone off the deep end in his theology, and he called him an antinomian. Uh, it comes from two Greek words, anti meaning against and nomos meaning law. So antinomianism means against the law. Against the law is what it means. It is the idea that Christians have been freed by grace and are not obligated to obey God's laws. That's the basic idea of it. The antinomians rejected the very notion of obedience as legalism. You know, it's like if you set your life up in such a way where you want to please God with it, and you, you kind of look at the Ten Commandments on occasion and say, you know what, I'm going to strive to please God with my life by obeying His law. And our, an antinomian would say, you're a legalist, you're a Pharisee. That's what they would say. Uh, to them, the good life flowed from the inner working of the Holy Spirit, you know, Antinomianism is heretical and contrary to what the Bible plainly teaches. God expects Christians to live in accordance to His law. He does. I mean, it's not like it doesn't apply to us. It does. Not for, not for our justification. For we have been justified by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, but for His glorification and for our sanctification and for our joyification. Oh, word I made up. That's why we obey the law. It's for His glory. It's for our own sanctification. God actually works, the Holy Spirit works through the law to conform us to the image of Christ. And if you read John 15, you'll know that the only way to have the fullness of joy is to obey what Christ teaches. That's the law of God perfectly taught. Very, very important. I love how... Um, the Puritan Samuel Bolton put it. He's not related to Michael Bolton, so at all. Uh, the law, he said this. This is great. If you ever want to read some good, enriching stuff, read, read the Puritans. These guys were great. The law sends us to the gospel for our justification. So the law says, hey, you need the gospel. You're a lawbreaker. And then, and then he says, the gospel sends us to the law to frame our way of life. Okay, so before our conversion, the Ten Commandments, will say, the Decalogue cried out, you're a lawbreaker and you need the gospel. After our conversion, the gospel cries out, you are a Christian and you should obey the Ten Commandments. That is one of the paradoxes of the Christian faith. We have been saved from the penalty, penalty of the law because we're all lawbreakers and then empowered by the Holy Spirit to obey the law and please God with our lives and through our lives. So, but antinomianism flat out rejects this. It rejects the law. It, it says it has no purpose for the believer. It's all grace. It's all Jesus. And don't, don't worry about the commandments and don't structure your life on those things. And just let the Holy Spirit come out of you and, and live that way in the power of the Spirit. And don't, don't pay attention to the law. Don't be a Pharisee. Don't be a legalist. And this really frustrates me in, in our day and age today because if you want to please God with your life, and, and you're mindful of His commandments, you rejoice in His precepts and all that, there are Christian brothers and sisters out there that will be critical of you for doing that. What are you doing? You're not living by grace. What? I mean, it's everywhere. I, I've been hammered. That is why I'm rarely on Facebook anymore. I've been annihilated on there. I, just, I, I go on there and put you know, a little picture of going down a, a super slide with my face boiling, you know, in, in Santa Cruz. That's, that's all I do on there. I don't put theological things on there anymore because, you know, you know there's airstrikes, you know. What are you talking about? You know, you, you made a comment about yoga pants. Women can do whatever they want. I never said they couldn't. I just don't think it's right to wear them if you're causing men to stumble. I mean, just it, the God's law. You know, just think about these things, you know. I don't think it's right for men to lust after women. I'll tell you that right now. It's a battle of every man. And, you know, you start saying these things and you point these things out. Maybe you, you refer to Scripture and you point it out and all of a sudden you're a Pharisee because you want to live out the Word of God and you want to do what's right. And it just, it just, it's so frustrating. 
And it's very antinomian to go around attacking believers who love God's law and want to live it out and please God with their living and life and want to have the fullness of joy because the only way to it is through obedience. You know, you can't... Grace is wonderful, I get it, but again, it empowers us to obey. It doesn't just save us and, okay, what did Jesus say? Not one jot or tittle of the law I will remove. They're there for our sanctification. They're there as a guidepost, and they're there to convict sinners of their need for the gospel. So the law has a purpose for unbelievers and believers, but it's antinomian to say it has no purpose for the believer at all. And of course, antinomianism, it has to lead to licentiousness. It does. Licentiousness is loose living. People begin to think that because of, the, you know, because of grace, they can sin all they want. See, that's where you've heard of antinomianism. It's in that, that little model, that little saying that goes around, you know, we, we, we've heard it before, the, the grace of God, you know, we can start to use it as a license for sin. You know, we can just sin it all up all we want, we can do everything. Does that, does that mean that grace doesn't cover our sins? Of course, the grace of God. It's an infinite ocean of God's mercy. But any believer who has the attitude that because of grace I can sin all I want is not a believer because they do not have the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit would never, ever train and teach a disciple of Jesus Christ that. That is devil talk. Now, the Apostle Paul dealt with an early form of antinomianism. He did. He had to deal with it with the believers in Rome. They began to treat the grace of God like a license or as a license for sin. He rebuked them in Romans 6, 1 through 2. He said, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Like just sin it up so we can have more grace? And he said, by no means, explanation point, exclamation point, by no means, that should not be the attitude of the believer. And then he says this, how can we who died to sin still live in it? You want a verse to use? To help someone who thinks that grace just enables them to live however they want, just, just go right to Romans 6, 1 through 2. First of all, you, you were supposed to have died to sin. And that means that you won't, it doesn't mean that you'll never sin again. It means you now have a hatred of sin like you've never had before. You're dying to it every day. You're crucifying the flesh. You don't feel good about when you sin. You don't celebrate those things. You know, you don't, you don't, in the middle of San Francisco, have a parade that goes right down the street with people celebrating their sin. Just, that's, not the, that's not indicative of the true believer. The true believer who has the Holy Spirit hates his sin. doesn't mean he stops sinning, but he sure hates it when he does it. He doesn't celebrate it. And he certainly would not say, grace, 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 grace. Is antinomianism around today? Of course it is. It's very prevalent in reform circles where there's a massive emphasis on grace and the law is jettisoned. So-called Calvinists are getting drunk and fornicating and using profanity even in pulpits, cussing in the pulpit. You know, I've got to admit, I've said a few dumb things in the pulpit, but you know, it's never been planned. It's never been scripted. You know, put that word right there and, and, and enunciate it. And these guys are like deliberately doing this stuff. I don't get it. It's blasphemous. It's blasphemous. Antinomianism is prevalent in liberal and mainstream American Christianity. Scriptures that refute antinomianism, Matthew 5, 17 to 19, Romans 6, 1 to 2, James 2, 14 to 26, right? Faith apart from works is dead. What's the works? Obedience to God's law. Caring for widows and orphans. Those sorts of things. Last five, and this one is going to be more controversial than the others. Pentecostalism. 20th century. Or Pentecostalism. My wife hates it when I say pente. Pentecostalism, right? You don't like it when I say it that way. Pentecostalism. 20th century. And let me explain why. Because, you know, there's a lot of Pentecostals. In 1906, a man named William Seymour began to lead a three-year revival on Azusa Street in Los Angeles. During the revival, Seymour allegedly saw visions, performed, you know, dozens upon dozens of miracles, and baptized people in the Spirit, and they started receiving the gifts of tongues and all this stuff. Uh, this was the birth of Pentecostalism, 1906, so it's pretty new still. They, they claim that Seymour is the, basically the pioneer 
of the modern Pentecostal movement um, and Azusa Street as the movement's birthplace. From Azusa Street, it began to spread, and today there are somewhere in the neighborhood of 500 million Pentecostals across the globe. Pentecostalism has become the fastest-growing type, um, if we'd call it that, of Christianity in the world today. Fastest-growing type. Now, let me give you a handful of reasons why Pentecostalism is on my list. At this point, you might know Pentecostals, or you might be familiar with the movement or some of the churches in our area, and you might be saying to yourself, I don't think it's fair for you to classify it as heretical. And I want to give you some reasons why I do. And I think they're very important for you. You need to pay real close attention to these, especially if you're involved with that movement or you're really familiar with it. These are four things that have come through that movement, okay? A, the prosperity gospel, which is hell words. The prosperity gospel teaches that God will provide financial wealth and physical health for believers who have sufficient faith. Faith, however is not defined as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of, th- of things not seen, Hebrews 1.1. It is defined as positive thinking. Okay, so when you, and Pentecostals put a massive emphasis on faith, it's so vital that you have faith, but you must understand what they mean by faith. It's not believing and hoping in the things that are unseen and those things that we see in, in Hebrews 1.1. It is positive thinking. That is what faith means to the high majority of them. It is positive thinking, that's what they call faith, that can result in material blessings. If it is sincere and strong, poverty and poor health among believers is either attributed to satanic attack that has not yet been overcome or weakness of faith, not enough positive thoughts. Okay? So the prosperity gospel basically teaches that God wants to hook you up with all, because of Jesus, God wants to hook you up with all this stuff, health, wealth, all of your dreams and desires and passions fulfilled because of what Christ achieved for you. The thing that you must have is a lot of faith, a.k.a. positive thoughts. And of course, you know, these guys that teach this garbage fly over to Africa and they say that, you know, they land, they get out, they do a crusade. And they take off with their pockets filled with money, and they leave people thinking that Jesus is a magical genie, and all they have to do is rub the bottle of faith, and once in a while they'll get hooked up. It's, it, watch Piper's little 10-minute video about why he hates Pentecostalism, or not Pentecostalism, why he hates the prosperity gospel, which has come through that movement. Just, it's a fantastic video. He says things that I, I, he's just brilliant. Second thing that's come through that movement, B... Word of faith. Name it and claim it. Name it and claim it. The belief that a believer can speak, state, or confess a verse in the Bible and make it come true for them. You know, a couple examples. If you're sick, you can name, claim, and actualize for yourself. Jeremiah 17, 14. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. You know, if you just say it over and over and over and believe it, you're going to be healed. Uh, If you want the ultimate bank account, ultimate family, if you want a cattle ranch and a garden, you know, an amazing garden, you can name, claim, and actualize for yourself. Deuteronomy 30, verse 9, the Lord your God will make you you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground. So if I just keep saying that over and over and over, I'm going to have an amazing estate, amazing bank account, perfect kids. It's craziness, craziness, all right? Here's, a, here's, a, here's, a, here's my personal favorite. If your neighbor has an amazing house, I mean, it's just, it's a palace, and you want to live there, and you want him out, you want to move in, then you can just name, claim, and actualize for yourself Joshua 23, 5, right? The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord God promised you. It's comical, but they believe it! Well, I, I, I want that house, and I want this, and I want that, so I'm just going to keep reciting, reciting this verse, and I'm going to believe that it's going to happen, and then God is obligated to make it happen. That's word of faith. And it's come through that movement. See, signs and wonders gone absolutely ballistic, wild, crazy. Every week, 
the Holy Spirit is mocked and blasphemed in Pentecostal churches through staged miracles and gibberish, false tongues, new revelation, false prophecy, emotionalism, adrenalizing people through high-energy worship, chanting, flailing, dancing, and man-centered sermons. It's a total mockery of the Holy Spirit and a terrible, terrible witness to this lost world. It's a horrible witness. In fact, 2 Peter 2.2, I think, speaks specifically to this group. Because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Because of the way these people act, the way of truth by outsiders and by insiders will be blasphemed, in a sense. You see, word of faith, the prosperity gospel, and signs and wonders gone wild are unique characteristics of Pentecostalism, and that's why, for the most part, it's heretical, and that's why it's on my list. Now, that doesn't, again, I've talked about this throughout the weeks. You know, we've, we've talked about Catholicism a little bit and some of the beliefs that are in that. Does that mean that there aren't some believers in the Catholic Church that are truly saved and love Jesus? There are. Does that mean the same thing for the Pentecostalism? Yes, it means it in all the groups. There's, there could be genuine believers in any of these groups, Although I, I can't figure out if, if they begin to study the Word of God, I don't know why they stay, you know. But for the most part, you can have genuine believers in these movements. Now, I agree with, with uh, MacArthur who said, the Pentecostal movement as a movement defined by its unique characteristics is not biblical. I mean, it's given us prosperity gospel, it's given us word of faith, it's given us signs and wonders gone absolutely ballistic, it's given us emotionalism, it's an experiential movement. You go to a Pentecostal church and you have a high adrenaline experience and you come out of there thinking that you were just in the presence of God when actually your adrenaline level went higher than it's ever gone and now you're relating your adrenaline and that emotional uh, thing that you experience at that place with contact with God, with being close to God. And it's not God. <laughs> it's not. It's emotionalism. Lastly, I want to give you a list of prosperity preachers and organizations to avoid. Joel Osteen, Benny Hinn, T.D. Jakes, Kenneth Copeland, Joyce Meyer, Rod Parsley, Creflo Steal Your Dollar, Robert Tootin Tilton. You remember that guy? Joseph Prince, Jimmy Swaggart, John Hagee, Pat Robertson, stay the heck away from the 700 Club. Good night. Bill Johnson out of Bethel Church in Reading. Pure apostate heresy. He is a heretic. Stay away from the guy. Todd Bentley. He goes around saying, the Holy Spirit is telling me, old lady, to kick you in the face. Poof. Kicks an old lady in the face. The 700 Club, stay away. Jesus culture, avoid it like the plague. Stay away from the music and all of it. TBN, Trinity Broadcasting Network. Stay away from it. It's no good. All of those people and, and those organizations are associated with Pentecostalism, word of faith, prosperity gospel, signs and wonders gone absolutely crazy. You ever turned on 700 Club and right there Pat Robertson's got his eyes closed and people are getting healed that are watching the program? You don't keep watching. <laughs> it's just deadly. It's de we laugh at it, but it's, it's deadly stuff. Close the whole series with a verse, and I, hope it, I just hope it's been informative. I hope that, that you'll consider the things that have been said, and that you'll pray through these things. You'll go back and listen again. Maybe you'll share with someone that you know that's mixed up in something somewhere. Maybe you yourself are mixed up in something somewhere, and you, and you need to really consider where you're at and what you're hearing and what you're being exposed to. We, I'm just telling you, we have a powerful adversary. He's not a little chihuahua nipping at our heels. He's a roaring lion roaming to and fro looking for someone to eat. And he's eating people who call themselves Christians all the time. In fact, that's his delicacy. That's his favorite thing to eat. He's already got unbelievers. Hosea 4.6, my people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. Boom. The Lord has graciously given you knowledge today over the last couple of weeks. We've covered 11 heresies. They're ancient, they're old for the most part, with the exception of Pentecostalism, but they're all 
around today. They're all manifested today in different shapes and forms. They're everywhere. Put the knowledge that you've accumulated, that you've, the things that you've learned in the last three weeks, put them to good use. Don't be deceived and destroyed by heretics. Protect yourself. Protect your family. Protect your church family. How do we do that? Submit ourselves to the authority of God's Word, right? Study the Scriptures and become scripturally fluent. Study biblical doctrine, high emphasis on Reformed. Not every, they didn't get everything right, but they got a lot of it right. And become doctrinally fluent. And I would say this as a last thing. Don't be afraid to correct a heretic and to warn others about them. Don't. You're actually called to do that as a believer. If something's happening over here or there, I mean, especially in your congregation, that would be the primary place where you are to correct someone who's gone off into another direction. But even out in the community, warn your friends about them. Say, you know, these guys are teaching this prosperity gospel over here. You need to be real careful with that. That's deadly stuff. You know, come, come over to a church that, that teaches the Bible line by line and just, you know, it, it's all about Jesus. It's not about the stuff. Don't be afraid to correct someone. You might really, really help someone who's mixed up and confused. They're at a place and, 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 and something's going on and they don't feel right about it. Help them understand why. Please. I don't care if it's Lectio or whatever it is. Just share what you've learned. My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. That's a sobering thought.